with the Girls That Create podcast on Word of Mom Radio. When something piques our interest, there's a feeling of excitement. When we watch a new movie, dive into a new book, see a concert, you know what I'm talking about. Well, that's how I felt coming across the book, How Creativity Rules the World, The Art and Business of Turning Your Ideas into Gold. And I was even more excited when the book's author, Maria Brito, accepted my invitation to be today's Girls That Create guest. She is a New York-based contemporary art advisor, author, curator, a Harvard Law School graduate, and originally from Venezuela. Complex Magazine, Selected Brito, is one of the 20 power players in the art world, and Art News named her one of the innovators who gets to shape the art world. For several years, Brito has taught variations of her creativity class in companies and also designed and launched Jumpstart, a comprehensive online program on creativity for artists, freelancers, managers, and entrepreneurs based on years of practical work, research, and observation in both the worlds of business and art. She shares her ideas and advice with thousands of social media followers weekly and through her newsletter and blog, The Groove. Welcome to Girls That Create, Maria Brito. Hi, Erin. How are you? I uh, just finished reading your book and absolutely loved it. And uh, with these episodes, I like to go back to the beginning. So your grandfather actually began painting later in his life, is my understanding, and you would spend time with him in his studio. And he actually helped inspire you to write How Creativity Rules the World. Can you share an early memory of him and how he impacted your life and how this book came to exist? Sure. Well, my grandfather comes from a different, obviously, I mean, he's dead now, but he grew up in a very different world. So he was a child of immigrants and they went from Lebanon to the Americas. And they really, at the time, my great grandparents thought that they were going to end up somewhere in America, this country particularly, but it ended up going to Venezuela on a boat. So that was a time where people were encouraged to pursue many interests. Academics were very, very different. So my grandfather grew up in a family with eight or nine siblings, and he, since a very early age, was into the arts. So he was uh, into music, and he was into painting, and he was into learning languages. And when he was old enough, he chose to be a physician. So my grandfather graduated with honors from medical school and went to study in France and then came back to Venezuela. And on his weekends, he used to pick up his easel and colors and canvases and things like that. And that was a very important outlet for him that relaxed him. He was very proud of the things that he made. He displayed his art everywhere in his house and he gave it away to friends and things like that. So obviously my grandfather had an enormous influence because I saw how someone could have so many different facets. And before I was born, my grandfather was kidnapped and he spent a month in the jungle in Venezuela. And, you know, he always told the story with great sobriety. Like he wasn't a guy who liked drama or exaggerations or hyperbole. I mean, he would have failed in this world where everybody thrives on victimhood and drama because that was not who he was. And, you know, it is an interesting thing when you don't really experience that episode by being there, but the thing sort of becomes such a part of your family that you're really like, wow, this really is something that marked the history of, you know, the people who were at that time. I don't necessarily feel that it has defined me, but it became something to think about as I grew older. And when COVID hit in 2020, at the very beginning of 2020, and we were on lockdowns and, uh, you know, New York City was particularly hit with, rules and the things that we could or couldn't do obviously we were all sort of going crazy 
And I started thinking about my grandfather and I Googled his name, which I had never done because my grandfather has been dead for about 20 years now. And I found a video of the day that he had been released from his kidnap. And it was a Reuters video that had been distributed around the world because, you know, there was a time where those things were kind of important. Venezuela still had at that time relationships that were important with the United States for oil and politics and things like that. So that the day that he was released, actually the day that he made it back to his house because he was in the jungle, so they had to pick him up and he had to call the police and all sorts of things. Uh, the day he actually made it to his house, there were, you know, a swarm of journalists from around the world. And so I was speechless because, I mean, I didn't even know that this video could exist, that anybody could have preserved such a thing. And so I thought, well, you know, this is perhaps an indication that I really have to use this time, that it's so uncomfortable and unfamiliar and terrible, you know, in every way. And how can I turn this into a positive thing? And so I thought, well, my grandfather did not let his being kidnapped and having to live with guerrilla people for 30 days of his life. He didn't let that define him. He just opened businesses after that. He he thrived in his own way, you know? And so I thought that that was, for me, a big sign that I had to kind of muster the courage that he had in his life to create things and to be resourceful. So that was the genesis of the book. That's an amazing story and very inspiring to hear. And when you were younger, you actually wanted to become a singer, yes. but your mom was not on board with that choice. And to kind of follow a different path, you became a lawyer, yeah. but then realized that was not what you wanted to do. And then you actually pivoted again and became a art advisor and started your own business. Can you walk us through that choice, how you said goodbye to law, and how you actually came about finding your true path forward that made you feel fulfilled? Sure. I think that, you know, you gave a very excellent summary of what was that was going on in my life. I became an attorney because I thought my parents had an idea for me of not being dependent. They had a very different background. Our parents tried to protect us and sometimes they tried to control us. They tried to prepare us for their world, but not for our world. So me being a singer was completely out of the question for my mother for many reasons, particularly like, you know, she thought it was going to be totally unstable. She thought that was not, that was a job for hookers. You know, that's what she thought. And that, you know, I mean, it's, it's like the impossibility of things, right? And I mean, I don't, for me, I don't think anything is impossible, but my mom had put a lot of limitations in her life that had to do with the way she saw the world, right? So I decided that what were the things that were interesting to me was like a lot of reading and a lot of writing. The truth is I never really thought I was going to argue cases in the Supreme Court because that was really not what I wanted to do. I was moved by an idea that I could give talents that I had in service of people who needed smart people who could read documents basically, right? I mean, it, it sounds so boring, but it, the truth is that I didn't, I couldn't do much with what I had, given the box that my mom had deposited me into, right? And as I lived, you know, I, I moved to the States and I graduated here and I moved to New York and I started practicing. Obviously, at the beginning, I put all my heart and soul on trying to see the beauty of what it is to be in a big corporate law firm and the blessings that it is to receive a salary every two weeks and to work with very big corporations and very smart people. And as the years went by, I realized that it was not really anything that I wanted to do. And it took a lot of self-reflection, which is something that I recommend anybody who is facing a dilemma or a midlife crisis. And when I was 30, that I started to think, I can't do this anymore. It's just not for me. And by the time, like I was 31, I, I got pregnant with my first child. And I, I really went again into the whole kind of self-reflection and say, well, 
I'm going to have a baby. I'm not really going to be able to see him much because when you're a corporate attorney in New York, you work 12 hours, 13, 16, whatever, you know, it's you're owned by the law firm and it is like a pact you do with them. And uh, that's what it is. And I also thought, well, I want my kid to see me as a possibility and not as misery. I want my child to be inspired by what can happen and not like my mom defined herself by this job that she hated all her life, even though it was secure, right? And since I had had all that kind of background with my grandfather and my, my dad also was a big aficionado, mostly of let's read our history books, you know, like when we have money, oh, let's travel and see museums and let's go to galleries, let's go to the theater. Let's, so it was a very, very big part of my life, to be honest with you. But it was always, this is for nurturing. This is for cultivation. This is for you to have a lot of great topics of conversation when you go to a party, but it's not a job. And I am thankful that those early years learning these things were super robust. And all the supplementation that I did growing up with books and high school and even college. And that really was sort of what ultimately gave me this push is that I knew that I had something that had been formed. Because it was stupid for me to think that I was going to be a singer. You know, seriously, it's like, okay, I gave up on that. But also... I mean, I was 31, and I was like, I am not going to be a singer, you know? I mean, like, it hurts, sure, but I'm also not crazy, and I can still do something that is wonderful, that is mine, that inspires me, that it's a world of beauty and great things, and I don't have to be on a stage to do that, right? I mean, I still can do something amazing with my life. And so there was a need in the market to be super dynamic in the contemporary art world. I saw there was a need for people to write in a way that was friendly and warm and inviting that was demystifying the art world. And so that was my end of how I differentiated myself is like I was utilizing social media and blogging 14 years ago when nobody really was doing that in this particular business that I am in. It was very kind of snob and it was guarded and secured and protected and sort of like nobody can participate of this. And I think that I was there, like I was blogging when nobody was really doing it. I was interviewing artists when nobody was doing it. And because I had really no kind of constraints of thinking, oh my God, what am I getting into? Or this person has this background or this other person would look at me this way. I just didn't have any of those hangups that people usually develop when you have been a part of an industry or you have been growing up in a specific type of environment, right? Like when you're developing yourself and everybody says things, it's like you poison your mind. I didn't have any of that. So for me, it was everything was like a blank slate and I didn't have anything negative that was holding me back. Other than my lack of experience doing that as a professional, but, you know, it paid off. Here we are 14 years later. One of the things in the book that I appreciate is that you dive into the myths about creativity, and there's a lot of them, and you focus on seven. And I would love to chat about the first one that you mentioned, which is the belief that only some are born creative, and that actually we all begin our lives strongly tapped into our creativity and that's something you explore, and I think it's something I would just love to hear you um, expand on here, because uh, I think it's so important, because if we get older, we sometimes feel like we're no longer creative, or we kind of bemoan that we're no longer doing things that we did as kids, but it doesn't mean it's gone, and it doesn't mean we start off not having anything there. Yeah, I think that, you know, when I started thinking about the topic of creativity in business and in art, obviously, but mostly in business, I... I was like, well, how do I become more creative? What am I missing, right? How do these people come up with ideas that are wonderful and I can't, or whatever, you know? For a while, I was like, am I really having the right type of thoughts? Or am I just conditioning myself to think something that it's not correct, right? Because there are errors in thinking, as you know. And errors in thinking usually come from 
either you don't have enough information or you have been fed the wrong information. So as I developed the framework for my, I have a course that, an online course that also is, goes very deeply into this. As I developed the framework for my course and then I developed the, you know, the outline for the book, obviously getting into science it was important for me because one thing is to say what I think, and people are going to say, well, that's great, but, like, that seems to be your life, or is it anecdotal? I mean, like, what are you really basing this on? So I went and I looked for every study that is relevant, that has been, you know, utilized in academic circles, that has been utilized by psychologists, that has been used by other, everybody who has written and gotten in-depth in the field of creativity and creative thinking, no matter what you do. And there is the study of one of the pioneers of this idea, obviously, and this actually fact that we're all creative. And he, what he did is that he started this field study with children and he followed these kids throughout their lives. And the, the findings were basically astounding because Every kid who's four, five, six is just immensely creative. There was a way to measure their creativity by asking them questions and seeing the answers, how creative, how out of the box, how inventive they were. And at that time, when they were that little, 96% of them were highly, highly creative. And the same children grew older. And by the time they were like in their 30s, only like 4% of them were actually. So the, the equation was completely inverted. So only 4% of them were actually inventive, creative, fulfilled, you know, like running great companies and businesses and being super, you know, making a difference in the world with their ideas. And the reason why is because of how the educational systems impose ideas on people and they don't teach people really what, like it's, it's not about what to think, right? Like we should be taught how to think because I mean, of course we have to learn certain things. I mean, there are rules and there are, you know, physics and math and all those things are very exact. But there are other many things that shouldn't be so black and white and sort of like this is it, right? And so one of the reasons why people lose their creativity is because of the rigidity of education and how education is given and how education is imparted, how education is received as well by kids. And the other thing is obviously you know, we all are part of societies. We all are part of structures. We all are receiving information in the form of media and news. And it's like, are we really questioning these things? Do we really have time to question them? Do we really have and, you know, double check every, it, it just, it's exhausting to live nowadays because we have so many push and pull, right? I mean, what we thought it was one thing, then the next day might not be, or maybe the, and so we in this 21st century, and I'm going to speak for America because this is where I am and this is where I live, you know, we are losing a lot of our edge in technology and science and anything and everything that we used to be number one because of this influence of media and and misinformation, unfortunately, that we have been conditioned because it's so available. There used to be a time people have the newspaper and maybe the nightly news or whatever, right? Like the, now it's like 24-7 cycle in your phone, anywhere you look at, and it's, it's hard. It is hard for the brain to get a little bit of a, an option and, and, a, and a moment of expansion you know, and to like sort of say, well, this might not be it. You mentioned actually the idea of calm to chaos and that people need to have those moments of where you're just thinking, considering, just letting your mind kind of wander and how important that is to your health, to your career, to being creative. And actually even mentioned that showers happen to be one of the best places where ideas come from, including yourself. And it it's important to make that space in our day-to-day -day lives. It is. And you know, I think that 
I see increase in creativity and good business ideas and opportunities when I spend more time in silence than not. And I obviously am a big proponent of meditation and prayer. I don't know. Anybody, you know, like you can name that whatever you want to name it. It's the benefits and the effects are the same regardless. But I don't think that people fully understand what can happen when you get the space and time to be alone in silence. People say, well, but I have a guided meditation, but I have music that sounds like this. Or, And it's the truth is that I think those are somehow shields so that we are not fully alone. They are excuses to distract ourselves, right? And because it can be quite humbling, and at the same time, it can be scary to be alone with your thoughts for a long period of time, whatever a long period of time that may mean to you. People sometimes start five minutes in the morning, five minutes at night, because it's all that they can do. If you could do 20 minutes at night, 20 minutes in the morning, it's really kind of ideal and optimal, but I think that whatever people can dedicate to these moments of silence and reflection or just really be, have an enormous benefit and a ripple effect in all they do. And when you mentioned the shower, it's obvious that, you know, when you don't have anything else to do, right, I mean, you are going to have to be with your thoughts. So. There is also the, the theory that has been proven also of the incubation effect. The incubation effect is when you give your brain a problem and you ask with certain determination to be given guidance or to come up with an answer. And for the most part, unless you are in like a moment of danger and you have all your hormones going crazy, you're not going to get an immediate answer. It takes a little bit for the brain, and that might be hours or that might be days. So when you have that eureka moment because you're in the shower, it usually is because you have been consistently feeding your brain with the question, giving yourself the time to be alone and in silence. And it turns out that maybe that day that you were not doing anything but taking a shower is when you get the answer. And so those things should be protected at all costs. For anybody who really is interested in contributing their ideas in whatever they do in their careers, in their companies, if they are in the world of art or if they are in the world of engineering, it doesn't matter because this is the same for everybody. Including kids. I should think about that. Kids, including absolutely. We're going to take a short break to hear from our sponsors. This episode of the Girls That Create podcast is brought to you by the Girls That Create website, where we provide parenting resources for raising creative girls, while also encouraging greater female representation across the arts. Visit us at www.girlsthatcreate.com, where you'll find articles by some of our podcast guests including Dr. Michelle Borba, Jessica Leahy, Renee Trudeau, and many more. You can also sign up for the Girls That Create newsletter at www.girlsthatcreate.com slash newsletter. She is brave. She is bold. She is you. And we want to tell your story. Are you ready to share your journey with us on Word of Mom Radio? Go to wordofmomradio.com and register as a guest. We want to tell your story because when you win, we all win. Unsilenced Voices has been working diligently in Ghana, Sierra Leone, Rwanda, and the USA to combat domestic violence, sexual abuse, and human trafficking. We currently have over 50 young girls on a wait list in Sierra Leone to go through a vocational training program to get them off the streets and out of harm's way. We have gifted over $33,000 to U.S. survivors and are looking for volunteers and donors to help us continue our cause. Please visit us at www.unsilencedvoices.org. Again, unsilencedvoices.org for more information. Are you experiencing insomnia, brain fog, hot flashes, mood swings, and more? These are many of the symptoms women experience on a daily basis affecting the health of their brain and increasing the risk for dementias like Alzheimer's disease down the road. 
A healthy lifestyle can make a big difference for the health of the brain, but Brain Love Health took it further and created an innovative nutritional supplement, especially for women, to support us through this transitional time while also promoting better sleep and long-term brain health. Don't wait any longer to help your brain age well. Why let it deteriorate? The health of your brain is in your hands. To begin protecting it today, visit brainlovehealth.com. That's B-R-A-I-N-L-O-V-E-H-E-A-L-T-H.com. Don't let the name fool you. Stadiumbags.com is not just for sports fans. Our clear bags make it easier for you to get into any venue that you go to. And in today's world where we are so concerned about germs, the materials that our bags are made with are strong enough to stand up to the solvents that you can use to clean your bag so you know you come home safely. So check out stadiumbags.com. You'll see why we are the clear choice because safety, it's in the bag. And we're back with the Girls That Create podcast on Word of Mom Radio. My guest today is Maria Brito, author of How Creativity Rules the World, The Art and Business of Turning Your Ideas into Gold. Speaking of mentioning myths, in your TED Talk, I love that you bring up the uh, stereotypes of the starving artist and that Mm -hmm. parents and caregivers constantly have this fear of, oh my goodness, my child wants to pursue an artistic career they'll starve and they'll never make money and they'll be moving home with me and how that, and that needs to all be put to rest because it's not true. It's something we definitely advocate for around girls that create. And I would just love to hear you expand on that and kind of share your, why you thought that was important to mention and how can we put that to breast that thought? Well, listen, I, I've heard this thing of the starving artist since I was a little girl. Because, as I said before, my parents, grandparents had this idea of taking me to museums and this and that. And for whatever reason, there was always the sadness of Van Gogh, right? Like the poor Van Gogh, you see, he was so amazing and like his beauty and his, you know, sunflowers and his landscape and the man died and he didn't sell anything. It was almost like... This is, this this kind of martyrdom is what it is, right? Like, it was mm-hmm. always we ended up with, like, Van Gogh. But nobody ever said Picasso died with 500 million bucks, as, as, you know, as, in 1974. That's about $2 billion today, right? I also say that in this book, in my book. Nobody says that Georgia O'Keeffe, when she died, she had, like, at the state, the state of Georgia O'Keeffe was, like, $80 million in the 80s. So, it's always sort of like trying to justify why being an artist is not viable, right? And honestly, here's what I, I want to say. There are starving dentists, there are starving lawyers. You know, like the truth is, if you're not excellent, this is also one thing that has come to the surface more and more. If you're not excellent, you're not going to shine in this world, right? And the word excellent encompasses many things. You can be excellent at marketing. You can be excellent in the execution of your art. You can be excellent in the articulation of your art. And you have to use those things and put them out. So while I don't think every artist is going to be Picasso or Warhol, I think that the space, as it is right now, is ripe for a lot of success for a lot of people. I I sometimes say, well, for most of us artists, this type of success is never attainable. And I don't like to break people's dreams, but when I look at what they're making, it's just terrible, right? And so I say, well, but you chose the wrong thing. I don't say it, but I think it. Because I'm like, this is just, you're totally, you don't even know what's going on in the world to be making this and thinking that it's good. See, there is too much ego also in being an artist, right? And that is true for anyone. And because it is something that you put out in the world that is so completely, fully intertwined with who you are. It comes from your hands. It comes from your vision, you know, and it is frightening, but it's full of ego. So if somebody has been doing something that has no merit, no value for so, so long, I don't know. Maybe it's time to rethink. But but by the same token, I say I have really never seen a time in history like the time that we have now. Artists 
who are willing to put themselves out there through social media or inviting people. I mean, social media really has revolutionized the mm-hmm. whole thing. And without Instagram, we wouldn't really have the world that we have right now in art, at least in art and many other, you know, fashion and travel and whatever. But like, and I, I mentioned Instagram with precision because TikTok is not doing that for artists and Facebook didn't do that for artists either, neither Twitter or Escort, whatever it is. So I say this with authority because this is what I do for a living and because I have many friends who own galleries who have found a lot of artists on Instagram. I myself have, you know, the luck that I have posted things from artists who are young and nobody knows and then they find a different type of collector base that they didn't think. So the tools exist. The tools are free to use. And it's totally up to you as an artist if you are going to use them or not. But definitely the starving artist myth has to be dismantled because the self-perpetuate, like if we self-perpetuate this this sort of like, it's itself, right? Because we keep thinking about it and we put that in the kids' minds, in the students' minds, then we are setting them up for failure without them actually having an opportunity to prove the contrary. And again, like not everybody should be an artist. That's it's the same thing. Not everybody should be an, a dentist. Not everybody should be a lawyer. Not, we never really talk about the, the starving dentist. You know, like what I'm saying is that, yeah, you know, the people who graduate with C's are going to start. Unfortunately, they chose the wrong thing because I'm also of the strong belief that everybody has very special talents and gifts. And and also, maybe you are not born with a gift, but you have the opportunity to develop something incredible in your lifetime, and you can give it to people, and you can work and hone and, you know, refine it and increase it. And a lot of people miss their calling because they are, like I was thinking about being a safe attorney. And if I would have been there, I would have missed so many other things that I have done that really make me happy. And that I have been able to help a lot of people and I have been able to enjoy, you know, what I do with so much love and so much passion. And so it's important to be, for people to kind of like not believe in the starving artist myth anymore. I love, too, that you are a proponent of teaching, like, adults should do this, but kids also, but asking questions, being inquisitive, always learning, always learning about the world. And you kind of said, you know, having almost, you know, an understanding of what's going on and how that's so important to whatever field you go into and why that should be encouraged. And as you mentioned, that's not really something in education we're seeing much of is that push to say, push back, ask questions, try to understand things. Mm-hmm. Well, you see, the the number one characteristic of the most creative people that has been studied across the board, no matter where you look, no matter what study you're able to pull or what book, is curiosity. It is the thing that every creative person has because some creative people are very introvert. Some some creative people are extrovert. Some people are numerical. Some people are more in language. But curiosity is the number one characteristic that every creative person has. And without that, it is very, it is impossible to be creative because being curious is encompasses so many things, right? It is asking the questions. It is disproving something. It is being interested in people who are different or being interested in people who come from different places or people who have a completely different background. And that is the space where creativity and great great ideas thrive, right? Nothing that is self-contained, nothing that is pure, is creative or has within the seed of growth. Growth comes out of things that exist already and that we add on from different fields or that we twist or that we mold differently. So it is very important to keep asking questions and to keep 
you know, having that desire to know more, to know better, to know differently, to embrace a different point of view, to learn. I mean, part of being curious is to know that you don't know everything, to know that there are all the things that you can keep adding to your practice, to your routine, to your business, to your career, to the way that you do everything that can be much better. And so if anybody really wants to expand on curiosity, I invite you to read different books, watch different shows, read like not the newspaper that you read every day. This is something that is so challenging, right? Because as we polarize ourselves more and more, then it's only this. Then it's only Fox or it's only the New York Times or it's only the Wall Street Journal or, you know, so, and what happens when you twist that a little bit? I'm not saying you have to agree because that is a, why would you have to agree with something, you know? But I don't believe that these things go void. Like when you are willing to learn how somebody reports the news and how somebody else reports it, even if it's a scandalous at the beginning, just look over it and see like, wow, these people have a very different take on mine, you know? Why would that be? And so that is expansive. That is enlarging, you know? I mean, I think that I don't know anybody who has been, like, in a place where they say, I don't want to grow anymore. I don't want to know anything else anymore. They wouldn't be listening to this podcast if that would be the case. I think, too, with kids, we have to also, as parents, be open to when they come to us with new things as well because when they're little, we kind of give to them and we're kind of guiding them. But then as they get older, they're starting to learn their own likes and their interests and what they want. And then they come to us and want to share something that we may never have thought about and their views. It may be different. And that can be a little jarring at first, but then be open to those conversations. Well, like I said, it's like you have an old, your own thinking about your own world, which is not the world of your, chil- of your children. There are many things that they are going to contribute to your life. And I think that one of the most interesting and ripe areas for growth and even in business is looking at what your kids are doing because they have a whole kind of like pioneering ways of falling in love with things and understanding different ways to relate to one another and seeing technology in a very different way than what we do and understanding the kids it's crucial to staying relevant. And I know that it might be hard to catch up with them, obviously, but it is also like an open invitation, right? Like how little they are, it doesn't matter. Just really pay attention to what kids are doing and pay attention to, if, if you were able to see the world with the eyes of a child, your life will be 3,000% better for sure. In parenting, there's actually a lot of talk about the importance of making, also letting our kids also fail. And in the book, you say that those who create also fail. That's part of being part of the process. What have you learned from studying how artists handle failure? And what can we take away from those examples? You know, as I have known so many artists in my life, uh, more than 400, I don't think that that they take failure as people in other fields do. I think that they understand it is part of experimentation. I think that artists are very keen to try new things and they accept that within that experimentation, there is a failure thing, right? That if they try something new and it's not well received, well, they try it at least, right? I think that One thing that I've also learned from artists is that failure is not personal. What failed was a project. What failed was a series that they tried to bring to the market differently, but not them. I don't want to generalize, but it is kind of common for most people to say, I am a failure, right? Like, I mean, this didn't work out. I didn't get the promotion. I didn't, the business didn't go to where it was supposed to go or I launched this particular project and it just didn't go anywhere or it didn't get the return that I was expecting. And I think that that's obviously a mistake that 
stop us from keep trying and keep doing things and experimentation is really important for growth and for evolution without it you know we unfortunately do not have a lot to say and to learn from because it's everything is surrounded by guardrails and safety you know positions and whatnot so failure is obviously it's going to happen regardless of whether you want it or not and there is a lot to be learned from failures because they are feedback and they are important. And sometimes failures, if you're really smart enough, you can shell them and pick them back up later and see were they really a failure or the world wasn't ready, but now it is. And, you know, a lot of people say, well, you know, oh my God, I was so early. I was, you know, I came up with this idea and the world wasn't ready. Well, just go and get it now, you know? I mean, it, it doesn't mean that because at that time the world wasn't ready, it's never going to be. I, I think that, again, like all the things that limit our creativity, our growth, and our success is ourselves. And you mentioned in the book, actually one of my favorite artists, which is uh, Helma F. Clint. And you also mentioned Sergey Brin and Larry Page, which are the Google guys, and you connect them. And with this term of invent, inventing the future, can you share what that means and why it's an idea that we should think about and it's also one worth discussing with kids? Well, look, I think that we have this idea of the future. It's something that happens to us instead of us being the ones who make it happen. And one of the most important ways for us and, and one of the I would say easiest ways for us to to obviously invent the future is to be very attuned to the present because whatever is happening right now is what gives us information and clues about what people do, what people want, what the world is doing. And as I said before, when you pay attention to what your kids are doing and you're taking ideas or clues, you are seeing a lot of what the future is going to be. And the I like the that you said, you know, how I connected Hilma and the Google guys because, in you know, in very specific ways, artists and entrepreneurs usually have the same kind of tools. And that's why this book is pretty much leaning on examples from both sides because the the habits and the thinking are pretty much alike, it, regardless of whether someone invents a phone and someone makes a painting. And this is very important because artists obviously are not bound by anything, by any rules. They can paint whatever, they can sculpt whatever, they can make film of whatever. And, you know, nobody says, hey, stop. Like, why are you making superhero movies of people who fly? Or why are you making movies with dolls like Barbie? And, like, that doesn't exist, you know? But at the same time, if you would have told me maybe, you know, 30 years ago that we were going to conduct this and I was going to be able to see you on a screen right. at the same time. It was a thing of Epcot Center in Disney World. You know, like that doesn't, it's like, it's not possible, right? But it is because people are constantly thinking about how to solve problems and how to push the needle forward in the betterment of humanity or to fix a problem that really has bugged you. And it is within you know, the realm of your expertise or you surround yourself with the people who actually have that expertise and get to bring that to humanity. And I think that all the tools and all the ideas that I wrote in the book have the ultimate goal of allowing people to be able to see the future and, and to obviously do something that benefits them. And and this is something that you're going to have to do many, many times in your lifetime because now more than anything and more than in any other time in history, the future arrives faster than what we would want it, right? Everything changes with such speed and it feels brutal, really. 
and uh, but this is the world and we are here for a reason it is nothing is random in the universe i have always thought that everybody who's here right now has a special meaning and a special mission and a way to cope you know and to thrive pretty much with what we have been given so it's it's not like an accident that we are here in this time and if you can capitalize simple ways that give you clues about what's to come then why not i love in the end of each chapter you have basically action items that you know readers can take as you mentioned and why was that essential to include in the book because a lot of times people do present the research but then they don't really tell you what to take from it and where to go with it Absolutely. So I want it to be very actionable. I wanted people to say, well, I myself love to like somebody tells me, well, go and do this exercise. You know, this is a way for you to try. And the book really comes alive when people decide to go and do those exercises and get pen and paper and dig into their thoughts and go, you know, free in their minds and see what comes out of that. And I think that's really important because there, nothing happens if we don't take action. That's also one of the myths of creativity is that, well, people sit down under a tree in a lotus position and then the muse comes and hands you everything. Well, sure. I mean, as long as you've been working before, then that's going to happen. But if you have just been sitting under the tree, I don't think anything is going to come to you. So the actionable tidbits that I call the alchemy lab reflect on what the chapter has given. I try that the end is not repetitive of what is in the chapter. I try it to be, of course, connected to what each of the chapters is giving to people, but I want it to be in a way that doesn't feel that you're reading the same. Some, some books have a summary at the end. I wanted this to be really like, this is an exercise that will really expand what you learned in the chapter. And I think that I have gotten a lot of messages from people saying, I followed the book to every chapter and this is what I'm launching now. And this is what I'm doing now. And look, I'm not going to take ownership for that. It's just people's own desires. I'm just a conduit. I'm giving you something that has worked for me and has worked for a lot of people. And hopefully you will be able also to integrate some of these things, but the work is yours. Right. You're the compass. Yeah. <laughs> the book is a compass. Yeah. If I can contribute something, right? What three pieces of advice would you give to a girl who's actually interested in going into art curation? They're understanding that, wow, that is actually a career, you know, that actually my job is to help artists and to help people build their collections and, you know, grow this appreciation of art. Well, listen, I think that, there are many ways to grow in this business that is highly dynamic and fast. And even I mean, people would say, why is it fast? Well, because really it grows and it changes. And there are more and more different trends and more and more different artists and more and more galleries and many more things happening all the time. But I, I obviously think that girls always have more patience and they have, they are very good with detail. Not that boys aren't, but I think girls are very good with detail. Girls are into beauty. Girls are empathetic. And all those are things that are important in a business with art and artists. And also when you're client facing, you have to use all those things that are softers, you know, they call them soft skills, but honestly, I think they are like hard, strongest, strongest thing people can have is like their integrity, their empathy, mm -hmm. being nice, being organized, being present, being on top of things, being curious. So I think that anybody can do anything. Anybody can be doing what I do or do it differently. And I mean, you're going to have to change many times and pivot many times as you grow, as things change, as people change. It's nothing is ever static. So I think the best advice I could really give to girls who are considering anything in the art world is that you have to be prepared to change constantly and that nothing is going to remain static because that's not the nature of things anymore. I mean, back in the time, in the day, I mean, yes, I love to give people ideas that 
are consistent, but the consistency comes more from habits that are universal, right? Having integrity, having being on top of things that is universal. But as we move in, in this really fast-paced world, we have to be ready to adapt and change as many times as are necessary to be aligned with the world. And, and that is something that I don't think we can explain and stress enough to young people that, yes, you can fall in love with a specific career and fall in love with a profession, but you have to be relevant. And that it requires a lot of learning on your part and being ready to upgrade that software every few months because it is otherwise you're going to stay behind and you don't want that. That is excellent advice. Maria Brito, thank you so much for being on Girls That Create today. Thank you, Erin. It's a pleasure. I hope that everybody got to learn something new. And, uh, you know, I'm excited for the girls who are creating great things and for this new generation that is really so cool and so fun and sees the world with so much empathy and vulnerability that we need that. We do need that. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. To all of you tuning in, thank you for joining us on the Girls That Create podcast on Word of Mom Radio. I want to read one of the many helpful pieces of advice from Brito's book, which can be found at the end of every chapter. List the turning points in your life where you've come up with creative solutions to big and medium challenges. The objective is to establish confidence in your ideas. Here's our closing theme song by Smith Sisters and the Sunday Drivers. Till next time, this is Aaron Prather Stafford. She is sure, she is sure, she is strong, she is strong, she is true, she is true. She is brave, she is brave, she is bold, she is bold, she is you, she is you, she is sure, she is sure, she is strong, she is strong, she is true, she is true. She is brave, she is brave, she is bold, she is bold, she is you, sure of herself, yes, she takes care of this. She is strong.